It is time for the Eastern Conference on the Locked On NBA Preview Extravaganza, a six-parter with the three Western Conference previews already in the books and available for you on Locked On NBA. I'm David Locke, and I'll walk you through the Atlantic Division today. And we'll do what we do, what the Locked On Podcast Network can do that nobody else can match, the local experts on all of the stories. So we'll head to Toronto and Philadelphia and Boston and Brooklyn and New York to check in with each of our local experts of the daily podcast Locked On. Then Rejecting the Screen, our national podcast with Noah Kozlov and Adam Stanko opening up to great reviews. We'll check in with tomorrow's headlines. And the number one fantasy expert in the land, Josh Lloyd, will give you his breakdown on fantasy. Make sure you get locked on fantasy basketball. And finally, before we're done, we'll let our locked on NBA host stop by for an overall look and prediction on the entire division. That's the plan. And then the next two days, we'll get the rest of the Eastern Conference for you. So let's get it going right away. The world champions. Oh, they love it when you say it. There might not be Kawhi, but there will be a banner and there is a trophy in Toronto. Sean Woodley is the host of Locked On Raptors. Hey, what's up? Sean Woodley here from the Locked On Raptors podcast for the Locked On NBA preview of your defending NBA champion Toronto Raptors. My God, that feels so good to say. Let's start off with the two biggest storylines going into this season for the defending NBA champions. Number one for me is that this is the Hakuna Matata season for the Raptors. Kawhi Leonard is gone. They're coming off their first championship in franchise history. There's really not any pressure on the team right now. Everyone's just in kind of a good mood. And this season is all going to be about sort of a noble title defense. The story of this season is going to be one of no worries, no stress, just a bunch of old dudes having a good time defending their title while Pascal Siakam sort of flexes his muscles as a number one option and they see exactly what they have in some of their guys as they look forward to whatever the next phase of the team is going to be. And that leads me to the second second biggest story, and that is Pascal Siakam and his taking of the reins as the team's number one option. How he performs, how his efficiency transfers from a 20% usage rate up to something closer to 30 is really going to inform what the Raptors' plans are going into the next couple summers and really crystallize whether they have a true number one option in him or whether he's someone who will need to star next to him to be at his very best the way he was with Kawhi Leonard in town. What has to happen for this team to reach its best case scenario? I would say Pascal's efficiency will have to transfer over to that scaled up usage to at least a somewhat comparable degree. He's not going to have the same 63% true shooting percentage he had last season, but if he can settle in somewhere around 58-59, OG Ananobi is also going to have to bounce back from the lost season he had last year for a bunch of different reasons, both personal and physical, and at least kind of settle into the role he had as a rookie as a steady 3 and D wing a couple years back, maybe even do a little bit more, and at least a couple of the half dozen wings they have in camp, Stanley Johnson, Patrick McCaw, undrafted rookie Terrence Davis, Rondé Hollis-Jefferson, Matt Thomas, Malcolm Miller. A couple of those guys are going to have to graduate to steady rotation player status. Kyle Lowry and Marcus Gasol as well will have to stave off their declines for another year, which I think is pretty likely if the team manages their loads well enough. They've been pretty careful with them in the preseason after Lowry was recovering from thumb surgery and Gasol was recovering from winning all of the championships and drinking all of the rosé in the summer. All that goes well, and this can definitely be a three seed in the East and win around. The worst case scenario for this team is probably something like a seven or eight finish, maybe just finishing outside the playoffs, although I don't think that's very likely. And what leads to that would be Gasol just not having the juice to be a go-to offensive option anymore. He's going to have to be something like the third or fourth option for the Raptors this season as he steps in to fill the shoes of Kawhi along with pretty much everyone else on the team. Siakam's growing pains also, if those are more pronounced than we anticipated, that might hamper the team's progress. And the spacing on this team might be an issue 
issue if none of the wings that they have on hand are able to knock down shots, and if Pascal Siakam stagnates from there, and OG Ananobi stagnates from there, and Kyle Lowry has a repeat of his down season from outside last season, if that all happens, they'll likely have a bottom third offense in the league, and that might drag down what should remain a very good, very versatile, and downright scary at times defense. And if all that happens and some of the mid-tier teams in the East pop, they could be in a little bit of trouble, though I don't think that's likely. In terms of stylistic differences to expect from this team this year, I would really look at the offensive end. Obviously, with the departure of Kawhi Leonard, things are going to change quite a bit. Last year, the Raps were, you know, kind of a default ISO-heavy offense when things got tough with Leonard running the show. This year, they won't have someone of that ability in one-on-one situations, so I'd expect we'll see a bit of a philosophical shift back to what we saw the Raptors do in the 2017-18 season when Nick Nurse's offense was unleashed and they ran a high-movement read-and-react offense that was number two in the league. Whether they can get those same results this season, I'm not sure, but the Raptors have been a top six offense for five years running and only had Leonard on their team for one of those seasons. And you could argue that this iteration of the team with Siakam as the number one instead of DeMar DeRozan a couple years back is more talented than that team from 2017-18. So I don't think it's terribly likely, but they could definitely surprise some people on offense. If there's a player who I think people are going to think differently of by season's end, it's probably Pascal Siakam. I think the view on him is generally pretty favorable right now after last year's most improved winning performance. But I also think the consensus is probably that he's closer to a clear number two and he's maybe close to being done developing as someone who's going to turn 26 this season. I think this year he's going to prove that he can be a number one on a good, not great team and be considered a top 20 or so player in the league by season's end. If there's a player whose career trajectory might be most impacted by this season, I think it's Fred Van Vliet. This is a huge year for Van Vliet. Of course, we all remember him hitting a steady stream of daggers over the last two rounds of the playoffs last season, getting one vote for finals MVP even, but I think that finish kind of served as a bit of erasure for his shortcomings in the first two rounds of the playoffs, as well as for much of the regular season last year. And how he performs this year, what Fred Van Vliet we do get will determine a couple things. First, whether he can be a starting point guard in the league somewhere, and whether that place will be in Toronto going forward. With Kyle Lowry getting extended to the end of 2021, there won't really be a starting point guard job open in Toronto for at least two years. And if he does clean up sort of the deficiencies in his game, he could very well play himself out of the Raptors' price range to the point where they can't both afford to pay him what he's going to command on the open market as one of the best free agents in a pretty light class next summer, while also maintaining flexibility for summer 2021 when they will have some eyes on some pretty big free agents with a ton of cap space to burn. In terms of rookies who are going to have an impact, really not much. Toronto had only the 59th pick this year in the draft, with which they took Miami big man Dewan Hernandez. He's likely destined for mostly G League duty this season, but Terrence Davis, who I already mentioned, who they signed as an undrafted free agent in Summer League, looks like he could really be something. He's getting run right now as the third string point guard behind Lowry and Van Vliet, and could also factor into the two, and my bet is that by mid-season or so, he becomes a regular rotation piece. He looks like a really mean defender in particular right now, seems to not really do too much outside of his comfort zone and he seems like a pretty steady option so Terrence Davis definitely a name to watch my best guess on how the season ends I think the Raptors are gonna be very good the Raptors have hit their over on their Vegas win total eight years in a row now they always find a way to win in the regular season and it's gonna be a hungry team out to nobly defend its title with Leonard and Green now gone and the extension of Kyle Lowry suggests that they are not looking to tear things down and trade their aging vets for meager assets this year I think that they make it four straight years with 50 plus wins 
finishing something like 51 and 31 with home court in the first round. And I think they win one round before falling in a surprisingly tight second round series to Milwaukee or Philly. And then they sort of reassess for next summer where they want to go from there. And my two predictions about this season, I think first off, Pascal Siakam is going to be named an East All-Star. And if he doesn't make an All-NBA team, he will finish just off the ballot for the forward spots. I think he's going to be really, really good and surprisingly effective as the number one option for the Raptors. And prediction number two is that if the Raptors make a trade this season, it will be for an addition that helps them win this season and not a move that sees an expiring contract like Gasol or Ibaka or Van Vliet go out in exchange for future assets. That'll do it for the Locked On NBA season preview for the Raptors. Please subscribe to, rate, and review Locked On Raptors on your favorite podcast provider for daily Raptors content all season long. So interesting, all the different perspectives on the Raptors. Some of the best national people giving a lot of love to the Raptors recently, uh, feeling that the record without Kawhi Leonard was an indicator. Interesting points from Sean. We'll hear from Noah Kozlov and Adam Stake on rejecting the screen, and then Josh Lloyd as well. On the Locked On Podcast Network numbers, they are not as positive. They have the Toronto Raptors as the 18th best offensive team, the fifth-ranked defensive team. That puts them at about sixth in the Western Conference this year overall. Uh, but that's really, as you're going to hear throughout the Eastern Conference, it's in after the first two teams in our rankings, it gets very, very close together. And actually, uh, Philadelphia and Indiana and Miami and Toronto and Brooklyn, who we'll hear from here in a little bit, are all pretty tight there. Uh, and considering, uh, I think, the separation a lot of people has, our numbers did not have that. And Orlando should be in that conversation as well. Nonetheless, let's get tomorrow's headlines on the Raptors from Noah Kozlov and Adam Stanko of Rejecting the Screen and Josh Lloyd's Fantasy Report. So here's what I'm thinking for the Toronto Raptors, Adam. 17-5, and five, ain't it. So that was their record last year without Kawhi. Mm-hmm. But I don't think you can look at the Raptors and say, well, they don't have Kawhi and everybody else is back and OG's there and the other guys are now better. Mm, ain't it. Because that schedule, when they didn't play with Kawhi for those 22 games, those teams were about a 450 winning winning percentage. And the on-off numbers were completely off, especially offensively without Kawhi out there. This team, I think, is is really going to struggle to score, especially on that second unit without Kawhi. So 17-5, and Raptors fans, don't just look at last year's record without Kawhi. Well, I hate to be negative, but the point that you just brought up to continue this negativity, the point that you just brought up about the offense struggling, that's my headline for the future. Where is the offense? This team was second in the league in offensive rating last season, but you mentioned it without Kawhi now. And they bring in Stanley Johnson and Rondé Hollis Jefferson, two guys who I think can bring this team up a notch defensively from, I think, where people expected they'd be sans Kawhi. But In terms of the offensive production, the last three seasons for Stanley Johnson, he's failed to shoot over 40% from the field or 30% from three. And Rondé last year, who I love, Chester PA native, Mm -hmm. but last season he shot 41% from the field, 18% from three. So the Raptors, without Kawhi Leonard, the offense is going to take a major hit. Uh, I think they'll still be okay, 
but certainly, as you point out, 17-5 and five ain't cutting it. The Toronto Raptors are obviously without Kawhi Leonard and Danny Green this season, but that opens up fantasy value for a number of players. Pascal Siakam is likely to take a big step forward this year. I think his efficiency probably takes a little bit of a hit as being the number one option, but his volume and usage and scoring should all jump up. He's a pretty solid third-round pick. I think Kyle Lowry is also being undervalued quite a bit. He is dealing with a thumb injury, but that's likely to be fine by the regular season. His value should jump back up. The usage should come back up. He put up a career high in assists last season, and now he moves into a larger offensive role with Leonard gone. So I think Kyle Lowry in that fourth round area with a scarcity of point guards is a pretty strong option. I worry a little bit about how Nick Nurse is going to use Marcus Gasol. He played all the extra basketball at FIBA. He's older. There's Serge Barker there as well. So that's going to have some impact on Gasol. He's more of a later round guy. And then trying to fill out those other areas. I really like Fred Van Vliet as a late pick. And then there's other starting spots. Is it going to be Norman Powell? Is it going to be OG Ananobi? I like Ananobi's defensive upside over Powell as a late-round flyer, but that's all both of those guys are. If you're in a deeper league, a flyer-type guy to take a look at is Chris Boucher. Could he get that backup power forward spot over Rondé Hollis-Jefferson? And in deeper leagues, Boucher is a guy that can put up pretty big numbers. So he's just a deep league name to pay attention to and, to, and just to keep in mind uh, in your drafts uh, for fantasy basketball. The world champs in the books. The most interesting team maybe in the Eastern Conference is the Philadelphia 76ers. Keith Pompey works for the Philadelphia Inquirer, longtime beat writer with the team on the road each and every day, brings his unique style to Locked On as well. He is certainly a local expert, and he breaks down the storylines on the 76ers. Welcome to Locked On 76ers. I'm your host, Keith Pompey, here to give you the 76ers preview for the 2019-20 season. You know, right now, there are a lot of storylines around the 76ers. So two of the biggest storylines with the Sixers are, are if the team has what it takes to make it to the championship. The second storyline has to do with Ben Simmons' approved jumper. Now, right now, in regards to the Sixers having what it takes to make it to the championship, no, I think they'll be a contender. I think that they'll have to go up against the Milwaukee Bucks, which is going to be a formidable foe. Um, but right now, when you look at the offseason moves that the Sixers made, you know, they're right there with the Bucks. You know, right now you have Joel Embiid, who's arguably the best center in the league. I mean, there are some people who may argue that others are. But in my opinion, he is the best center in the league. And then you have Al Horford. Who's, who was a free agent addition, who's going to be the power forward. You look at it, the starting lineup is Ben Simmons at the point guard position. You have Tobias Harris, who re-signed in free agency with the Sixers at small forward. And then you have Josh Richardson. Josh Richardson is the two guard. He was acquired in a trade from the Miami Heat for Jimmy Butler. So you look at that starting lineup, it's tall. Josh Richardson is 6'6". The next shortest person on, in the lineup is Tobias Harris. Ben Simmons and Al Horford are both 6'10". Tobias is 6'9". And then you have Joel Embiid at 7'2". So that lineup right there is going to be a defensive nightmare for opposing teams. Also, they have a lot of balance. You have three All-Stars in Horford. Embiid and Simmons and Tobias Harris is a fringe all-star so right then and there 
the team is going to be formidable. Going to be one of the best teams in the Eastern Conference and the NBA. When I say another storyline to pay attention to is Ben Simmons' jump shot. You know, Ben has been working hard on his shot all summer. Not to say he hasn't been doing, putting in work in the past, but this year a lot of attention has, you know, has been made of his shot, of the things that he has done. Now, the storyline to pay attention to is, is he going to shoot that shot? In the past, he was very hesitant. Sometimes teams sagged away and he still passed the ball. So this year, teams are going to leave him open, especially in the playoffs. Will Ben Simmons pull the the trigger. Now, in regards to what needs to happen for the best case scenario, you know, I think it is Simmons. Simmons has to attempt that shot in the playoffs because what's going to happen, teams are going to sag away, you know, and they're going to, you know, the thing is they're going to sag away and they're going to force them to get these shots. I mean, take them. Now, if he makes a couple of them, they're going to have to guard them differently. And if they guard them differently, it's going to open a lot of things up. Now, again, I don't think that Ben Simmons is going to be a trigger man who's going to come down, come off of screens, and fire up threes. But when he's open, he has to attempt and make some just so it can open everything up for everyone else. Now, what will lead to the worst-case scenario for the Sixers would be if Ben Simmons didn't get that jumper. Honestly, it is as simple as that. Second thing is, if Tobias Harris does not become an active participant in the offense. You know, the big thing about the Sixers last year is when Joel Embiid was, was un, was, wasn't healthy and he missed games, Tobias was very vital to the team's success. When Joel Embiid came back, Tobias was a bystander. In the first preseason game, Tobias was a bystander. The second preseason game, when Joel Embiid didn't play, Tobias was very effective and the Sixers had a balanced offense. So when you look at it, Ben Simmons has to take shots and Tobias Harris has to be extremely active. You know, will this be a... Uh, the next thing is people want to know will this be a stylistically different team offensively and defensively. You know, last year the 76ers had J.J. Redick who came off a lot of screens and was firing threes and doing a lot of things uh, in the perimeter game. This year the Sixers, they really don't want to rely on the threes as heavily. They don't have a three-point shooter on the roster the equivalent of J.J. Reddick, so that has something to do with it. Now, Josh Richardson has looked good in the preseason in regards to making threes. But what they want to play is they want to play smash-mouth offense. I mean, why not? You have Embiid and you have Al Horford, two big guys. They want to get to the paint. And they want to play bully ball defense. They want to get after it. And they tried to play stellar defense last year, but they just didn't have the bodies, especially on the second unit in the backups. So that's what really de- uh, destroyed them and, and, and hurt them, you know, get out of and excuse me, hurt them and didn't allow them to get out of the second round. Now, the player most likely to be thought of differently at the end of the season. Mm-hmm. I will have to say 
everything goes well, I would have to say that would be Kyle O'Quinn. You know, Kyle O'Quinn is a lunch pail type of guy. He likes to hit threes and he likes to bang down low, back up center. The reason why I'm saying he's going to be thought differently is because as of right now, he's been looked upon by the fans as a guy who's just going to come in and not really do a lot. You know, just be a good locker room guy. Now, we all know that when on the nights that Joel Embiid is going to sit out, the all-star center, Al Horford is going to slide over and be the starting center. So Al Horford is actually the backup center. However, Kyle O'Quinn is going to get a lot of minutes at the center spot, regardless of who starts there. He's going to get a lot of minutes. And he's going to be able to have a niche as a a blue-collar type of guy, a guy who can bang with people but who can also make some threes when need be in the perimeter. Now, again, I'm not saying he's going to be a three-point sniper, but that's how the Sixers are. They want some of their bigs. They want to stretch the, stretch the floor. Although we all, like we said before, they don't have a J.J. Redick. But don't be surprised if, if they use him to stretch the floor. Now, the player whose career trajectory is most impacted to see the season either good or bad it could be Furkan Korkmaz you know if Furkan Korkmaz Furkan Korkmaz is a reserve guard he's a guy who came into the league known for making threes he's excelled for the Turkish national team he's a, a Turkish citizen and he excels for that national team However, he hasn't really been able to put things together in the NBA. This is his third year. Last year, what the Sixers did was they basically didn't pick up his option. So he became a free agent at the end of the season. Well, their their, their quest of picking up a top-notch three-agent sharpshooter didn't go well for him. So they ended up re-signing Furkan. So Furkan's going to get an opportunity to show what he can do. Now, if Furkan can make some shots, he'll probably have a pretty good career. If he misses shots, Furkan could possibly be out of the league next year, if not the year after that. Now, rookies who will have an impact, and how much? Well, the one rookie that will have the biggest impact, and that's the only guy I'm going to talk about, is Matisse Theibel. Matisse Theibel is the best defender on the team. They played the Charlotte Hornets two nights ago. Matisse had two steals and a block in two minutes. The first two minutes on the floor. He gets after it. He does a lot of things. You know, he needs to work on his shot and work on his all-around game. But defensively, this guy provides what the Sixers needed last year, what they were missing. So he is a perfect fit for the 76ers. And I think that he will have the biggest impact. No, I don't think I know. My best guess on how the season ends is a tough one. I mean, I have the Sixers winning about anywhere from 56 to 60 games this year. I mean, this team is good. You know, but when I look at them right now, I believe that they need to get another shooter off the bench. You know, especially if Furkan Korkmaz doesn't produce to a level that they think he's capable of. 
So with that being said, I have the Sixers losing in the Eastern Conference Finals right now. Now, again, I have not seen the Milwaukee Bucks in person, but from with all I've read, read, and all I talk, and all I all I see on television, you know, all the things that um, people have told me, you know, they have some guys who can go up against the Sixers. So at this particular time, I have them losing in the Eastern Conference Finals to the Milwaukee Bucks. Now, again, this is the preseason. A lot can change 10 games into the season, on my, on my opinion, but that's what I have. I want to thank you all for listening, and have a great day. Locked on points gain system, not as high on the 76ers as some other people, has them as the 7th ranked offense, only the 11th ranked defense, which I actually think is wrong, and uh, that's also through Kevin Pelton's numbers, and so I think that'll pump them up if that does, that gets them to the number 2 seed in the Eastern Conference like everybody anticipates right now. They're sitting at the number 3 seed, Boston coming off as a better defensive team than Philadelphia. We'll hear from John Corrales in just a second and see if he agrees with that. Right now, let's get tomorrow headlines from Adam Stanko and Noah Kozlov from rejecting the screen and Josh Lloyd's fantasy report. So here's tomorrow's headline for the Philadelphia 76ers. And some of these are a bit facetious. This one is exactly how I feel. The Sixers will miss JJ Redick more than Jimmy Butler. Now, when it comes to getting a guy the ball and getting a bucket, sure, Jimmy Butler. But the Sixers have other guys to do that. J.J. spreading the floor, the gravity that he holds, opening things up for everybody else, plus J.J. as a professional in the locker room, and I understand that they have Al Horford there, but J.J. Redick, who has been through a lot in his career, has never missed the playoffs. Al Horford hasn't either. They will miss having J.J. Redick around, and also they actually might miss having T.J. McConnell around, but they're going to miss having J.J. Redick's presence, professionalism, and just dead-eye shooting, work ethic, hustle during practice and during games, they're going to miss J.J. Redick, the Philadelphia 76ers, more than they're going to miss Jimmy Butler. But, hey, I still think they're getting to the finals. I love the take. Uh, For me, it's best defense in the NBA. That's the future headline for the Sixers. They were seventh in defense last season. As you point out, they lose Redick, Butler, McConnell. But they added Josh Richardson. Al Horford, which enables them to do some different things in the front court, especially when Embiid sits for injury or rest. And the biggest one for me, Matisse Thibel. If you didn't see this kid coming out of Washington much in college, he is a special talent on the defensive end. The best defensive player to come out of the college ranks in at least a decade. I've never seen anything like it. He is going to excel defensively from day one. Brown is going to have to play him. And I think the Sixers will end up as the best defensive team in the NBA, especially considering how underrated Ben Simmons is as a defender, how long this team is, and of course, what Joel Embiid can do. Shocking, shocking. A Pac-12 guy gets a headline. Shocking. (laughs) The Philadelphia 76ers, they exchanged Jimmy Butler and J.J. Riddick in their starting lineup for Josh Richardson and Al Horford. So that's going to have some sort of an impact. I think that Simmons and Embiid can take maybe a small step forward this season, taking some of that ball, especially for Simmons, some of that ball handling that Butler did last year should bump Simmons' assists numbers back up. I think his usage goes a little bit back up as well. 
As for Richardson, it's a harder spot for him than where he was last year. He was the number one offensive option in Miami. Now he goes to maybe being the fifth offensive option with Philadelphia. But what that should allow him to do is focus more on defense. He saw his steal and block rates drop pretty precipitously last season. And they were one of the big strengths of Richardson's fantasy game. So if they go back up, he comes back to being that 65 to 80 type of fantasy value player, especially if he can focus more on being a spot-up three-point shooter and getting those defensive numbers in. It will be hard for Al Horford to replicate his numbers from last season as well. So I think he slides a bit this season into that 60 to 70 type range as well, playing alongside Embiid. Horford only played 29 minutes a game last season. Hard to see that he goes above that this season on this Sixers team that is gunning for a pretty big prize this season. He will back up Embiid as well. Now, as for Embiid, a lot of concerns about load management. I still think that he's a pretty solid option in the first round. There is a, a genuine risk there. He didn't sit out back-to-backs last season for rest. He played a lot of minutes. Maybe they're a little bit more cautious with him, but everything coming from Philadelphia, and especially from Embiid, is that he's going to be gunning to get awards, to get into the one seed, to win this championship, and he's not intending to sit. So there's a, a definite risk-reward with Embiid, but I do think that he is a first-round player. As for Tobias Harris, he playing small forward rather than power forward hurts his rebound numbers, and he doesn't provide much defensively. So I think that limits him somewhat, although those points are going to be pretty tasty. Last year was pure tumultuousness the whole time for the Boston Celtics. There's great optimism this year that the chemistry will matter. Let's see what John Corrales, our local expert, writes for MassLive.com as well, covering the Boston Celtics, and hear what he has to say and the storylines, the breakdown, the breakout players, and all the things you're getting used to in our Locked On NBA podcast NBA preview. It's the Boston Celtics. Hey, it's John Corrales with the Lockdown Celtics podcast here with your Boston Celtics season preview. Let's start with a couple of the biggest storylines and really the most obvious ones deal with replacing those players who left. So number one, Kemba Walker in, Kyrie Irving out. What can Kemba Walker do for the Boston Celtics? Can he be a slightly different player than the Super Bowl dominant guy than he was in Charlotte? The thought is that Because he's with a better team, with better teammates, he doesn't have to do all of the things that he did in Charlotte. And then the next departure, Al Horford, Aaron Baines, the bigs. What's going to happen with that front court? The Celtics are experimenting with different lineups here in the preseason. Robert Williams, can he step up? The new guys, Ennis Cantor, Vincent Poirier. Can Daniel Tice step up from a reserve role to a bigger role? Brad Stevens is going to have to figure out what he does with the front court. Now, for the Boston Celtics to reach their potential, the ultimate best case scenario is Gordon Hayward comes back and returns to Utah Gordon Hayward. Kemba Walker, like I said, gets to a point where he can facilitate a little bit more, still remain a a top-notch scorer and an all-NBA level type of guard. And then Jason Tatum takes a step forward. If those three guys can be one, two, three uh, at their absolute best and Jason Tatum becomes an all-star level player, you have three potential all-stars there on the wings for the Boston Celtics. You throw in Jalen Brown in a contract year playing extraordinarily well. And if those bigs can be figured out, if that rotation can be figured out, then the Boston Celtics can be very, very good. Now, best case scenarios don't always happen. They rarely happen, in fact. So it'll be interesting to see how much of that the Celtics can put together. 
If they can't, then you have the potential worst case scenario, which is Gordon Hayward doesn't come back to old Gordon Hayward, that he just becomes uh, a shell of himself and that injury just ends up taking a big toll. You have Kemba Walker not being able to assimilate into the Celtics offense, that Brad Stevens can't get things to work together. Jason Tatum is just reverts to his Kobe mid-range kind of mindset. If those things happen, then the Celtics are in for a, a big disappointment of a season. And if the Celtics can't get it together, there's a possibility that they fall to the fourth, fifth, even sixth seed. I mean, they're lucky that they're in the East. In a worst-case scenario, they're still a playoff team. But if things go wrong, they can go really wrong. Stylistically, this team will be different on both ends of the floor because they don't have Al Horford. And I think that impact is huge for the Boston Celtics. They, on defense, it depends on who's out there, but even with Ennis Cantor, who may be coming off the bench, their pick-and-roll coverage is going to have to be a drop pick-and-roll coverage pretty much with everybody who's on the floor. That's different than what the Celtics have done in the past. They have switched a lot. I think we're going to see a lot less switching from the Boston Celtics. Offensively, last season, they were very isolation-heavy. So I think Brad Stevens is really emphasizing the ball movement, that democratic Whoever gets the ball in the right position gets the right shot, and that's just going to be the emphasis of this offense. They might do a little bit more pick and roll because they have bigs that are going to roll hard to the basket. We'll see how Vincent Poirier really steps up in that regard, but they will have some noticeable differences on both ends of the floor. As far as players who are going to be thought of differently at the end of the season, it really boils down to... Gordon Hayward and Jason Tatum, because Gordon Hayward has the has the opportunity to be the most improved player in the league. I mean, he he has a strong chance at winning that award if he comes back and goes to the old Gordon Hayward. So a lot of people have been writing him off. So I think he qualifies for most likely to be thought of differently. Uh, Jason Tatum, a lot of people now questioning outside of the Celtics sphere how good he really is. Last season, I understand that because of how he played and how the Celtics season went, that he will probably uh, not be seen coming into the season as a future star from some people. But he can, if he plays efficiently the way he says he's trying to, he can be looked at as a, a star if he really focuses on threes, getting to the rim. That means he, his career trajectory, could be the most impacted after this season. Uh, also, Jalen Brown, I think, is going to have his career trajectory very strongly impacted this season because he's in a contract year. He's a guy that I personally see as a high-end role player, but if he can demonstrate some uh, evolution in his offense, uh, a little bit tighter defense, especially closing out on on shooters, if he can tighten some of these things up and show some growth on the offensive end, then maybe he can elevate himself to a much higher level. Rookies are going to play a role on this team for sure. And I'm looking at Carson Edwards and Grant Williams especially. Grant Williams is going to get his minutes. He's part of those small lineups. His IQ is very highly touted. I've talked to people in the organization who already say that his IQ is very uh, high and they're very excited about what he can do. So they're going to use him 
at the four, maybe some small ball five. Carson Edwards comes in and is immediately fearless and can hit threes. He can be a spark plug off the bench, and he's a tenacious defender. He's a little small, so it might be situational sometimes with him, but he is really unafraid of the moment. He comes in and he shoots. I think ultimately the way this all boils down for Boston is probably somewhere 49 wins. It might end up being a lot like last season. A 49-win season, second-round playoff loss. If they can do that again without the disappointing blown leads, if they just play hard and end up with that same exact result, Celtics fans will actually be happy. They just want a team that plays hard. So I think a 49-win season is probably your best bet. The over-under set around 49.5, I think, would be a tough one. Two predictions for the Boston Celtics this season. One is that Tatum and Gordon Hayward are on the more positive side. Hayward, I think, goes back to at least some level of what he used to be, whether it's 85%, 90%, 100%, somewhere in that range, I think Gordon Hayward comes back. I think Jason Tatum takes a noticeable step forward. So that's prediction number one as far as players. Number two, the Boston Celtics make an in-season move. That's my guess. Some sort of in-season move might be for Jalen Brown or it might be for another one of these bigs. Somehow I think the Celtics need to fix their log jam at the wing and get some front court help. That's your Boston Celtics preview. I'm John Corrales, host of the Locked On Celtics podcast. Follow me on Twitter at RedsArmy underscore John and follow the show at LO Celtics. Points gained, the Locked On system is Pretty positive about Celtics. Has them as the eighth best offensive team in the NBA, fourth best in the Eastern Conference. Only Milwaukee, Philadelphia, and Brooklyn, actually, who we'll hear from in just a second, are better offensively in the Eastern Conference. Seventh best defense overall. Second seed in the Eastern Conference is how the points gain system is looking at them right now. So that's uh, certainly interesting. Make sure you're keeping your eye out for some exciting news about the Locked On Podcast Network and a new national show that will be airing once a week with insight you can't imagine you could get. That's right. Very special show has probably been announced by now, but I have to make sure since this is being put up as a podcast. You never quite know. We have another national show. It airs twice a week. It's with Adam uh, Noah Kozlov and Adam Stanko. Sam Mitchell is their guest this week. He tells some great stories, so make sure you go grab Rejecting the Screen. And now the Rejecting the Screen guys come by for tomorrow's headlines on the Boston Celtics. The Boston Celtics are producing a headline that I don't agree with, but I could see coming. Brad Stevens any good? Ooh. Got an extension through 2022. Six years there, two conference finals, got to an Eastern Conference semis, game seven. It's when the Kyrie emergency deviated septum surgery happened on Memorial Day, and it couldn't happen in anywhere close to Massachusetts. So Brad Stevens, if this team doesn't get to the Eastern Conference finals or doesn't compete at a high level in the Eastern Conference semifinals or at some point during the season, if they're not a top four team in the Eastern Conference, I know these headlines are coming in Boston because it's the look what they did without Kyrie with a bunch of those young guys overachieving. So could Brad Stevens, I remember saying this going into last season, well, now Brad Stevens has expectations. He's never really coached with expectations before. He didn't have expectations at Butler, even after they went to the Final Four one time. Didn't have expectations mm-hmm. to get back there. Mm-hmm. So now the ex- now the expectations are, well, they should revert back to where they were before Kyrie got there and everything should be good. So 
that's where this headline comes from. And I know it's coming from Boston. I know it's coming from Boston. Is Brad Stevens that good? Well, if Brad Stevens has a terrific season, it's going to depend on the young guys. And that's that's my future headline. Celtics carried by their youth movement. For all the talk of the returning guys, whether it's Gordon Hayward or whether it's Jalen Brown or whether it's Marcus Smart or or even what obviously Kemba Walker is going to do for that team, I love this rookie class and I think that they can be impactful, maybe as much as any rookie class not coming from from Memphis or certainly from, from New Orleans. Romeo Lankford didn't get a chance to see him in summer league, but he is a super talent. He's developing. Carson Edwards can be a scorer off the bench. He's a spark plug. Reminds me of what, what Dana Barris was as a, as a pro, but a little bit stronger and more explosive. Grant Williams, a sturdy big. And then Taco Fall, if he can somehow, some way, make some plays throughout the season. I think with all the talk about the vets on the Celtics, it'll be the youth movement that could push this team to another level. Things are pretty different with the Boston Celtics this season. Kyrie Irving and Al Horford are gone. Into that spot is Kemba Walker. Now, Kemba put up a huge usage number with the Charlotte Hornets last season. He's not going to be able to replicate that in Boston. So that drops his overall value down. I think he's a prime candidate to be overdrafted. People look at Kemba and go, well, now he's with better players. So his assist numbers are going to skyrocket. His percentages are going to go up. And maybe that's the case. I think the large hit, though, he takes in usage is going to offset that and pushes him more into a back-end second, probably start of the third round type of a player. We all hope that Jason Tatum can take another step forward, but I'm not fully banking on that. He will take a little bit more of an offensive load in that 45 to 65 type fantasy range for this season. But the starting center spot is still up for grabs. Is it going to be Robert Williams? Is it going to be Daniel Tice? It does look like Ennis Cantor's coming off the bench in like a 24-minute-a-night role. And in all likelihood, that center position is probably going to be just a streaming-type option for fantasy. You want to grab some blocks for a day? Add Williams. You want to grab some points and rebounds? Cantor's probably going to be your guy. I don't think any of those players have significantly high upsides, given the way that Stevens will likely use that matchup. As for the starting shooting guard, will it be Jalen Brown or Marcus Smart? I don't really think it matters. I think we will see Brown play significantly more minutes than he did last season, but he historically has been a very bad fantasy player. Poor free throw percentage, lack of uh, blocks, really low uh, assist numbers, poor rebounds. He scores okay, but he's got poor tunnel vision. I think that he's fine as a late round pick, but expecting a big blow up from Brown will probably leave you disappointed in the end. Thank you, Josh. Josh Lloyd's fantasy Locked On Fantasy Basketball Show is the number one fantasy basketball program in the country it, and in Canada, so all, all around. It is uh, top 50 on the iTunes charts regularly. He does incredible work, so make sure you add that and subscribe to Locked On Fantasy Basketball. Well, the team that I'll tell you here about in a moment that we like the most on the Locked On system, or surprisingly enough, is the Brooklyn Nets. Let's head out to the borough and find out what the guys say on, from our Locked On Nets local experts. My name's Josh Bass. I'm one of the hosts of Locked On Nets alongside Marcus Barahal. Marcus, take me through a couple of the biggest storylines that we're anticipating for the Nets this year. Sure. Um, So the biggest thing for Brooklyn this year is obviously the addition of Kyrie Irving and just how he'll fit not only on the court but off the court. There were locker room concerns in Boston and that kind of played a factor in his exit from Cleveland as well. So the biggest storyline for the Nets is going to be how Kyrie as kind of the sole focal point of the offense and of the team is able to to guide the Nets and try to keep that chemistry that they had last year. 
completely agree with that. Also, a little guy named Kevin Durant, we're going to be monitoring his progress all season long. The Nets uh, put very limited expectations, said he's not going to come back this year. But we're still holding out hope for April. Who knows? KD Watch is officially on. Uh, best case scenario for this team, a guy named Torian Prince is really going to have to step into KD's shoes. Obviously, Prince was acquired uh, in the trade that uh, Atlanta and the Nets made where they gave up Alan Crabb and some first-round picks. They need Prince to really be their starting power forward because Rodion's Karutz has some off-the-court drama going on right now. We're not sure if he's going to be a part of this team this year. They need Prince to be a, a very solid starting caliber forward because they don't have that much depth there. And also, Karis LeVert really needs to retain the, the form he had at the start of last season and also in the postseason. Once he came back from injury last year, he really struggled in the regular season, got it together, but the Nets are going to be relying on him as a very significant ball handling option for them this year. Definitely. Karras is a huge swing guy for Brooklyn this year, and things could go really poorly if he doesn't hit that ceiling and if he can't quite mesh with Spencer Dinwiddie and Kyrie Irving in that Nets backcourt. And you mentioned Torian Prince and the the possible lack of Rodion's Kuruks. That's a spot at the, at the power forward position where Brooklyn isn't super deep, and if they don't have enough shooting on the wings for those uh, three backcourt guys, things could get really cramped on offense and they could wind up not hitting their ceiling and kind of taking a step backward from where they were last year. Absolutely. Definitely need guys uh, like Garrett Temple. He's going to be a key role player for them to hit shots. They need Spencer Dinwiddie's three-pointer to be on. Levert has an inconsistent shot. They definitely need guys to be able to step up and provide spacing. Dinwiddie and Kyrie in particular both love to have the ball in their hands and, and both very much shoot first players. So it could cause some conflicts there. And, you know, if those guys don't mesh well, the Nets could be in for a season where they're maybe the seven or eight seed as opposed to a four or five like people are expecting. Right, exactly. And it's such a small margin for error in the Eastern Conference this year where after those top two teams, Milwaukee and Philly, really anyone could get that third seed. I mean, I've seen some people saying it's Boston, some people saying it's Indiana, some people saying it's Brooklyn. I've even seen like Orlando and Miami thrown out there. So I think that the the gap isn't really large between those like teams three through 10. And so a couple things here and there on the margins could really make a difference. Yeah, absolutely. But the good news is stylistically, this team will be very similar to last year. Kenny Atkinson's approach has been well implemented. And even though Kyrie Irving is coming in, uh, he's a talent upgrade over D'Angelo Russell. But stylistically, they're very similar in that they love to have the ball in their hands and be that primary creator. So for some of the supporting guys on the Nets, it's not going to be very much of a different role. They lost Ed Davis, but brought in DeAndre Jordan, very much uh, a kind of a lower usage center. So uh, stylistically, this team will have the same approach, and hopefully that continuity will be able to paper over some of their uh, losses on the depth side of things. Yeah, for sure. And it's about getting uh, mainly Kyrie Irving to buy into the system. I think everyone else was either there or has kind of been a role player either uh, throughout their career in the cases of guys like Garrett Temple or they've kind of grown into that role now in a guy like DeAndre Jordan. So I think buy-in won't be a problem. It's just making sure that Kyrie uh, is happy and satisfied on the court and kind of is able to bond with those teammates off the court. Got to keep Kyrie satisfied. Marcus, give me a player that you think would is most likely to be thought of differently, either good or bad, at the end of the season. Uh, we've talked a lot about him. It's Karis LeVert for me, just because uh, last year he started so strong and then had that devastating injury, eventually came back. You and I discussed how it took him some time to work himself back towards where he was at the beginning of the year, but once he got there, he was the Nets' best player in the playoffs last year, and if he can continue that trajectory with Kevin Durant out this year, 
this is really his opportunity to be like a top two option on like a really good playoff team. And if he can make strides, he could be viewed as a potential all-star. And if he can't make those strides, if he regresses, if his jump shot doesn't come along, uh, it could be a huge like flaw in Brooklyn's plan in terms of uh, they're getting close to like the luxury mm-hmm. tax and planning stuff for, for the future years once KD is back. Mm-hmm. And then in terms of other players whose career trajectory we think will be impacted this year, Torian Prince, we mentioned him a lot, uh, but he's in a contract year. The Nets are going to need to see if they want to extend him, if they think he'll be worth uh, the salary he'll likely command in free agency. Uh, and if he has a poor year, he might not be seeing as many offers as he thinks he'll expect uh, once he hits restricted free agency. Another guy, DeAndre Jordan, either he's going to have a really nice rebound season and maybe that contract doesn't look as bad as people initially thought. Or, you know what, maybe he is just a little bit washed and he's not going to be on that level that people uh, expected him to be a couple of years ago when he was a very highly sought after free agency. Uh, on the rookie front, unfortunately, the Nets don't have many high-impact rookies this year. Nick Claxton could get a lot of run if there is a big injury to either DeAndre Jordan or Jarrett Allen because the Nets don't have any depth at center behind those two. And he could showcase some skills, uh, interesting ball handler and shooter for his, his size. But otherwise, you know, they have Jalen Hands, who's going to spend most of the year in the G League. So not a ton of rookie impact besides that. Uh, Marcus... What do you think the season's going to be like? Uh, give me some good news. Um, I would say I'm expecting the Nets to win 47 games, and I think they get out of the first round this year. I think that them, Boston, and Indiana, to me, are like the three through five teams. So obviously you want to get that third seed so you can avoid playing one of those other two teams. But I think regardless, the Nets can uh, find a way. They're like a gritty, scrappy team. I think I can see them making it out of the first round and winning a playoff series. Yep, agree with that. Ultimately, I think when they get to the playoffs, Kyrie Irving is much more battle-tested than D'Angelo Russell. He can score more efficiently in the playoffs. I think with this Nets team, they could definitely win a series. We'll be rooting for it here in Brooklyn. David, back to you. Thank you, Josh and Marcus. The fourth best offensive team in the NBA this year, according to points gains. Surprising. And that's with Karis LeVert still being a negative player. But all their guys are positive. 48 minutes of rim-rolling centers. Kyrie Irving upgrade from D'Angelo Russell is considerable. Whether he plays enough games to have this impact, this is with everybody healthy. Really an interesting thought. Brooklyn comes in, actually because defensively they struggle as the seventh team in the Eastern Conference, but offensively, points gained loves the Brooklyn Nets. Noah Kozlov, Adam Stanko rejecting the screen with tomorrow's headlines. Now here's what could be coming down the pike with the Brooklyn Nets, Adam. The headline. No worries. KD's got it. So when Kyrie hears this first, the first time Kyrie hears, ah, don't worry about it, KD's got it next year, I think he's going to lose his mind. And that's, what I'm, and that's what I'm waiting for. If they hit a rough patch and Kyrie is hearing from the press, from fans, the buzz in Brooklyn, wherever he's living – in New York City, don't worry, KD's coming back, Kyrie. Don't worry about it, KD's coming back. You're going to tell me that Kyrie's ego can handle that, that all of a sudden Kyrie is back to being the guy who can't win without LeBron or can't win without Kevin Durant. It's going to be a fragile situation. I can't wait to see it. See, my headline also revolves around Kyrie. My future headline is, Kyrie says he's happier than he ever was in Boston. 
<laughs> Can't you see that, Noah? Yeah, Can't you see that headline coming? Uh, look, we know about the young talent that the Nets have, and uh, it, it's in droves. Backcourt, frontcourt, there's a lot of young pieces to appreciate. There's some shooting. They have low expectations this year because of KD. And we remember how the Celtics went on the run without him in the playoffs. Kyrie was was never truly happy in Boston. And then, of course, the, the, the thought that people would question whether he was going to return and how, how could you even think that he might not return? Of course, he didn't return, even though he said he was, <laughs> was going to. So for me, Noah, it's that Kyrie feels happier without the pressure, without the expectations. That's going to be the headline. Now, will it turn out in the end to look more like your headline where he loses it? That one could probably come too. But I assure you at some point, we will be seeing the headline. Kyrie says he's happier than he ever was as a Celtic. Kyrie Irving joins the Brooklyn Nets this season. I think he could be in line for one of his best fantasy seasons ever. He's in a situation where his elite free throw percentage and elite field goal percentage, uh, they're not going to be adjusted in Brooklyn. He's going to be the man. He's going to be running things. I think that the minutes limits that Kenny Atkinson has put on players in the past won't necessarily be applied to Irving. Not that he's going out there and playing 36 a night, but he won't be playing the 30 minutes a night that D'Angelo Russell played last season. And Irving, at the end of the first round, is a pretty strong option. I also think Karis LeVert is in line for a big year. He struggled last season when he returned from his ankle injury, but in the playoffs, he was probably the Nets' best player. He's going to handle the ball. He'll score a bit. He'll get those assists. He can get some steals. Efficiency has been a concern for LeVert, but I think he is strong in that, say, 70 to 90 range of a draft. Karis is a great option there. Joe Harris is more of a streaming option late in your draft for three-pointers, and the center position looks pretty muddled with Jarrett Allen and DeAndre Jordan. I think Allen starts the majority of the games, but that doesn't mean that he's playing more than the 26 minutes a night that he saw last season. So these are guys just late round type picks. As for power forward, I don't know if it's going to be Rodion's Kurooks or if it's going to be Torian Prince. I would probably take the chance on Prince as a later draft pick. He looked great in the first preseason game, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to carry over. More just a late round flyer type. It's not last but least is it? Oh, it might be, but we will have an entire division preview coming in just a moment from our Locked On NBA guys led by John Corrales here in just a moment as the guys have done a, uh, our Locked On NBA show is your daily show on what's going on in the NBA, short, bite-sized, 30-minute daily show, rejecting the screen twice a week, once NBA talk, once long-form interview, and a new one that's floating out there with analytics and a look once a week, long-form, and insight you just can't get anywhere else. I can't say what it is yet. It's pretty exciting stuff, though. It's all out there for you. Um on the Locked On Podcast Network. All right, finally, we go to the Knicks. And time to talk New York Knicks basketball. Alex, we are starting off with the biggest storylines for the New York Knicks entering the 2019-20 season. What jumps off the page to you? Well, the first thing is the point guard battle, Gavin. There is uh, a lot of competition going on there. Uh, There's incumbents, Dennis Smith Jr. and Frank Nilakina, and the newly signed Alfred Payton. Smith probably figures to be the front runner to take the starting job coming out of camp as long as he comes back from his injury and plays well in whatever preseason action he gets. But then beyond that, uh, Nilakina is showing out pretty well since coming back from the FIBA World Championship where he uh, helped lead France to a bronze medal. And Peyton was a fairly sought-after free agent, I guess you could say, on the point guard market. So it's, it's definitely an interesting competition. 
And, and I'm interested in how the Knicks sophomores do this year. I mean, I mean, they're the key to this rebuild. Mitchell Robinson, Alonzo Trier, Kevin Knox, Robinson and Trier in particular surprised in the rookie seasons. Robinson was from day one, one of the better shot blockers in the NBA, if not the best shot blocker in the NBA. Can he build on that? Will Alonzo Trier emerge as one of the better six men in the league at trajectory? He looked like he was on at points last year. And can Kevin Knox turn into a functional NBA player? He played big minutes a year ago, wasn't great on offense, wasn't great on defense, looking better and more important yoked in this preseason so we'll, we'll see if that translates uh, Alex what do you think the best case scenario for the Knicks is this year I think one of the biggest things is that all these pieces have to fit together you know the Knicks kind of in a way took a similar strategy to what they did last year in free agency which is they signed a lot of guys to one-year deals uh, or you know in this case it's one plus one deals but you know there's a lot of guys that need to prove something on this team and might be playing for a new contract they're going to have to juxtapose that with developing youth and somehow find a balance there where everyone is still committed to a team goal uh, while, you know, also developing their players and getting these veterans enough minutes to hopefully get a new contract. Yeah, and, and I think the best case scenario essentially involves those storylines going well. The Knicks find their point guard of the future. All those sophomores take a step forward, and they look significantly better next season. Um, as for the worst case scenario, I'm a little bit afraid of a potentially dysfunctional locker room if the Knicks minutes don't sort them, or the Knicks rotation doesn't sort itself out the right way. The, the Knicks added, I, I believe, ten new players this off season. A lot of them vets. A lot of them with expectations of. Uh, greater role than they played on their previous team. If they don't play that role or if the Knicks are bad and David Fisdell decides he wants to play the young guys and he wants to bench the older guys, is a Bobby Portis okay with that? I'm not 100% certain. So I'm interested to see how the rotation goes and whether Fisdell can strike the right balance between planning for the future and making sure those older guys are content. You could also argue as far as a worst case scenario that if if neither Frank nor Dennis Smith, Frank Nolakina, I should say, nor Dennis Smith Jr. make a leap of some sort and prove to be more of a point guard of the future going into the final years of their deals, which hopefully the Knicks will pick up in the next week or so, it could be a potentially disastrous scenario because that's really just a position that the Knicks have not had any consistently good production out of for so long, and they really just kind of need a breath of fresh air there at this point. Uh, Gavin, what do you think? As far as style goes, what will be stylistically different on either the offensive or defensive end this year? I, I just hope there's some kind of identity, and, and that's a vague answer because David Fisdale hasn't told anyone what the expectation is in terms of how this team is going to play on either end, outside of that they want to play fast. A year ago, the Knicks were 16th in the NBA in pace. I expect that to go up, but how much it goes up is contingent on the defense forcing turnovers and, and getting stops, and I'm not sure how much of a certainty that is. I, I just want to see the Knicks have some kind of coherent identity, Alex. I'm fully with you, and especially on the defensive end, I think. On, on offense, it's it's concerning that the Knicks don't run a lot of organized sets, uh, but on defense, especially last year, they just hemorrhaged points. Uh, this year, so far through two preseason games, looks maybe like we're on the upswing, but there's no way to totally say for sure yet. But they definitely need to start establishing identities on both sides of the ball because that was something they sorely, sorely lacked last year. So, Gavin, who do you think is a player that's going to be most likely to be thought of differently? My thought is Frank Nilakina personally. No, I'm, I'm in total agreement with you. I mean, he, he certainly had a breakout this summer for Team France. I mean, absolutely decimating Team USA with a couple of big threes down the stretch, harassing Kemba Walker and Donovan Mitchell up and down the court throughout that game. It, it was honestly, given the, the way the Knicks had been the last couple of years, the biggest games of his young career, and he looked better 
as both a scorer and a creator than he has ever looked in the NBA. I'm so fascinated to see if that can translate. I mean, Knicks love Frank more than they love their kids. So it, it would be a really big deal if he could take a step forward. I, I think it's going to happen. He, he clearly looks more explosive and more confident. But Alex, a slightly different version of that question. Which player on the Knicks do you think their career trajectory is most impacted by this upcoming season? I think it's probably Julius Randle. Um, you know, he went from, you know, being just a consistent role player from his Laker days, you know, a burgeoning role player, I should say, to a guy who looked like he's on the verge of a star turn last year with the Pelicans. And then the Knicks signed him, you know, fully with the intent of him becoming a star. So I think that, you know, as far as career trajectories go, you know, Julius Randle is a real chance to elevate himself from simply a solid starter to, you know, a guy or, you know, a guy last year who was viewed as a six man coming in to a solid starter and then potentially even an all-star caliber starter if he puts up really good numbers and can do it under the bright lights in New York. So I, I think there's definitely a chance that his career trajectory could be very, very uh, affected for the positive. Um, Gavin, what do you think about uh, this uh, pretty softball question here, but uh, which rookies do you think will have an impact and how much? And the Knicks obviously only have two rookies, so I'll, I'll throw you the softball of R.J. Barrett first off. Uh, well, you know, I was going to say Iggy Brasdegas, but I guess we could talk about RJ. Uh, he was the number three pick in the draft. Uh, he went to Duke. You might have heard of him. Uh, to me, this is, I'm, I mean, this sounds uh, maybe a little over the top to say for a guy just entering the NBA at the age of 19. But I think this is a really important season for RJ Barrett and what he's going to be as an NBA player. I, I've long expressed my concerns on the Locked On Knicks podcast about his explosiveness, his ability to win off the dribble in the NBA. He's shown some good signs, some good flashes in preseason a little bit towards the end of Summer League, too. I'm hoping he continues to build on that, and he proves himself to be an effective scorer from year one. To me, to me that means hitting about 42% of his shots from the field, 35% of his shots from three, not being a garbage fire on defense. I just want to see a guy who's an NBA-ready scorer. That's what he was pegged to be out of high school, and I really want him to prove it. What do you think about RJ this year, Alex? Uh, I think RJ is going to be great, actually. I was actually going to hop on Iggy Brazadakis, but I, I'll just briefly say on RJ that I think that, you know, we've already seen from RJ that his finishing ability is, I think, a little bit further along than I even thought it would be coming out of Summer League. Seems a lot more comfortable with his right hand uh, rather than just his dominant left hand. So that's been promising. Uh, in general, I, I really think that he's going to have a standout. Uh, rookie year and the thing that could potentially push him into rookie of the year type consideration though that seems like it's going to be hard because Zion looks like a beast uh, but they could put him in the second or third uh, place conversation for rookie of the year is if he can start hitting threes consistently more or less right off the bat um, as far as actual placement in the east it's always so tough to say because I'm like oh I think the Knicks are going to get these many wins but what does that actually add up to I think it, I said this on our on my three part uh, schedule breakdown show, and, and I actually stick by this. I think they'll get 32 wins this year. Uh, I do think it's going to be a pretty market improvement from last year. Obviously, they're not quite going to make the jump to like a playoff team overnight, but I do think that the vets that they signed are good vets, and their uh, young players will take some jumps. I think RJ Barrett is going to have a great impact, and I do think they'll they'll come out with 32 wins. Anyways, that wraps up this preview of the Knicks. Back to you, David. 
The New York Knicks have one of the most confusing rotations to try and figure out in the NBA. Mitchell Robinson has a great opportunity to be their best fantasy player. Can he stay on the court? Foul trouble really limited him last season. And what will Fisdale do? Will he, if Robinson gets into foul trouble, will he put Bobby Portis in? Will he put Taj Gibson in? How will Fisdale manage those minutes? I think that Robinson in that third or fourth round is fine. His blocks are pretty high. But if he tries to stay out of foul trouble, will that mean his block rate drops? I think there's a legitimate chance of that, but he's still strong. Julius Randle, I think in some situations, is being a little bit overrated. His lack of defense, the poor free throw percentage, does drop his value down, but he's going to score a lot. He's going to improve his assists this season as well. He shot threes at a better level last year. He's still strong in those mid-rounds, but I'll see some people talking about him as a top 30 player, and I don't see that for him. RJ Barrett, like Randall, he struggles to get defensive numbers. He's going to have poor efficiency in both the field goal percentage and free throw percentage category, making him just a last round guy, the or later round guy. The point guard situation's a mess. Dennis Smith dealing with a back injury. Alfred Payton's in the mix there. Frank Nilakina, who David Fisdale seems to dislike, so I'm not really counting him in there. But it looks like it's going to be a back and forward between Peyton and Smith during the season, uh, leaving both of those guys probably on the outside looking in. Same with the Marcus Morris starting over Kevin Knox situation. I wouldn't be interested in either of those guys in a standard fantasy basketball draft. Oh, who knows what tomorrow's headlines will be on the New York Knicks, but we will leave that to the snarky fun of rejecting the screen and Noah Kozlov and Adam Stenko. Hadn't thought about the Knicks from a fantasy perspective before. That is a kind of wild concept. All right, before we wrap this up, we've covered all the Atlantic Division. We've got a special treat. Our Lockdown NBA crew is stopping by to give you their perspective on the way that they think the predictions of this whole division is going to break down. Remember, three national shows for you on the Lockdown Podcast Network. The daily Lockdown NBA, 30 minutes, the night scores, breakdowns of the biggest stories, and analysis catching you up on the game. Rejecting the screen with Noah Kozlov and Adam Stanko, an NBA talk and a long-form interview, and a new show that should be announced, you should be subscribing to, with analytics, insight, front office expertise, something you can't get anywhere else. This is what the Lockdown Podcast Network has grown to be. Let's get our Atlantic Division preview. John Corrales, Dave Vermill here trying to uh, break down the Atlantic division. I think we probably are just like everybody else. We Are we just going to install the 76ers at the top of this division? That seems the likeliest choice. I mean, obviously, the additions they've made pretty much put them at the top, and uh, I, I like their chances. They've got a lot of talent, especially at the top. I do have concerns about their depth, however. Yeah, the depth, I think, is a bit of an issue, but they're so loaded at the starting positions. It's not really a need to break all of that down. We know what they got from – I'm the Boston guy, and we lost Al Horford to Philly, which is a painful, painful thing, and uh, I'm choosing to ignore it as much as possible. Uh, but uh, I think the even more underrated uh, pickup is the Josh Richardson pickup. Yeah, uh, clearly he, he's a guy who couldn't really establish himself as a leader in Miami – and so maybe he never quite got the credit he's due, but he's an all-around solid player, really good defensive player, can do a lot on offense. He's a good playmaker as well, and he fits so much better there with a team with a clearly established hierarchy where he can fit a role and excel at it. He's going to be really good for Philadelphia. So everybody has the Sixers at the top. They're probably one of the two best teams in the entire Eastern Conference. Now comes who's next and it's really a race between the Raptors, Celtics, and Nets, and different people have differing opinions. I'll make my case for the Celtics as the the next best team in this division. I think some addition by subtraction with Kyrie Irving, just because of the aura that he 
built around uh, himself and this team. There's definitely, I know from being around the team every day, a sense of togetherness, a sense of moving forward. Kemba Walker is no slouch. I expect big step forward for Jason Tatum. I expect Gordon Hayward to kind of be somewhat closer to himself. So I think, I think the Celtics might have a, like a half step ahead of the Raptors and the Nets. I tend to agree with you. I, I kind of see that uh, the Celtics are going to be able to coalesce a lot more. The vibe is certainly going to be much improved. And as a result, I, I can kind of see them having a little bit of a bounce back. Now, I do have questions about their overall defense, especially in that starting lineup. So you'd know a lot more about it than I do, but I, I don't know how they'll match up talent-wise. I think they took, obviously, with the loss of Horford, they dropped in talent. But I think they can make up for it with some of the intangibles off the court. Uh, I'll still give the nod to Toronto, even though I'm not particularly high on the Raptors. I kind of see the fact that after they've won the championship, I'm not sure they have anything left to prove. And that seems like it was one of the things that always kind of defined this team is having a chip on their shoulder, whether it's because they were from Canada or because they could never get past the second round or anything of that sort. And now all of a sudden they lose Kawhi Leonard. Obviously, they kind of retool a little bit. They they extend Kyle Lowry's contract. But I'm not quite sure what it is that they have left to prove. So I, I, I think they have more talent than Boston does. But as far as their willingness to kind of show out every night and continue to prove themselves, I don't quite see it. Yeah, it, it's going to take some, I think, steps forward from like Pascal Siakam has to become like a star. Like, he ascended last year, but I think he just needs to do that consistently. Uh, one guy who might be able to step up, they, they didn't get much from uh, OG Ananobi at mm-hmm. the end of last season. I think that uh, is going to be a factor if they can get a little bit more out of Norm Powell, if Fred Van Vliet can go back to being consistent. They they definitely have the talent. It's all kind of a jumbled thing, and it, it's will things go right for one of these teams? Which team will have more go right for for them than the other? That That might be how it shakes out, which brings me to Brooklyn, because having watched Kyrie Irving in Boston, it, it's interesting to see some of the parallels. Now, they don't have some of the guys that are looking to get paid, They've already gotten paid, but there is still a Kyrie and a group of guys that had a very high level of chemistry that overachieved, and they kind of had this culture that was established. And I'm curious to see not only what he, how he fits, but adding DeAndre Jordan and that thing there, adding him and and taking away from from other guys like Jared Allen, who was right. successful, like I just kind of wonder if there's going to be a chemistry thing that that brings them down a notch. I, you know, I tend to think that you're right, but to say I think DeAndre's a nice pickup in the sense that he could kind of smooth some of those rough edges there. Like that's somebody who's already in Kyrie's corner, and I don't think he had anybody like that in Boston. And so while I agree with you that he could come in there and potentially disrupt that culture that was already established, that kind of since we built ourselves up from nothing after they were a lottery team for so many years and they finally started achieving some success, then all of a sudden Kyrie comes and obviously everything changes, but then DeAndre can kind of smooth things out, I think. And, and you know, it doesn't hurt that Kevin Durant's also one of Kyrie's biggest supporters on the roster. And while he may not be playing, eventually he will, but I'm sure his presence is already felt at the locker room. I, I just, they're not going to be able to accomplish much this year, obviously. Without Kevin Durant, they're arguably one of the top three players in the league when he's healthy. 
they're going to be a fantastic team and a legitimate title contender. But without him, I'm just not sure what you can expect out of a Kyrie-led group. I, I will give him th- this. Uh, he chose Brooklyn. He didn't choose Boston. Right. And that, I think, is going to be a big factor. He's home. He's been a Nets fan his whole life. So being back to a place where he chose, uh, knowing that KD is coming around the corner, that does change the dynamic a little bit. So it's going to be very interesting to see how that works out. Uh, and then the Knicks. I don't know that there's much to say about the Knicks as far as uh, what kind of team they're going to be. Uh, they are definitely going to be one of the worst teams in the NBA. Maybe not at the bottom, like bottom two or three, but definitely pulling up the rear in this division. Yeah, I'd have to agree with you there. I know there's some optimism from Knicks fans, and you <laughs> you tend to kind of dismiss it given the fact that they're you know they're, they've been optimistic for a long time without having much reason to be so. But you look at the accumulation of talent, and clearly it's an upgrade over what they had last year. But at the same time, I'm just not sure how it all fits together. Now, if there is something to kind of hang your hat on from as a Knicks fan's perspective, is it the fact that maybe you'll get more out of Mitchell Robinson? I know Frank Anilakina is still a guy that a lot of people are kind of optimistic about. I'm not sure what else you'll get out of those players. Uh, RJ Barrett, maybe you can expect some good things from him, but he's a rookie. He's got to find his place there. I'm just not sure what David Fizdale is going to do in order to kind of get this talent maximized. And you've got a lot of guys there who are on short-term contracts, so they're going to be trying to prove themselves as much as possible so that they can parlay that into their future contract. So that could be either a recipe for disaster or maybe, and I, I don't count on this, it could be something where they can kind of work together as a group to kind of help each other out. I don't think that's more very likely. No, no. I, it's not about wins for the Knicks right now anyway. They've, I, I will say that while they did massively strike out on the free agents, uh, they, they recovered sure. to set themselves up for the next big free agent summer in a couple of years where obviously Giannis, but other big names are, are free agents. That's what this is about. And they do have a bunch of power forwards that maybe they can swing a trade, but this is about getting their young guys the the playing time that they need to see if they can get Kevin Knox on track, to see if they get Barrett on track and figure out how these young guys kind of fit together as part of the future. So not about the wins and that will show up on the, uh, in the standings. All right. That's it for us. That's the Atlantic division. Two more divisions to go. We'll have them for you on the Locked On NBA feed. Thanks for tuning in and spending all this time with us on our preview editions. This has been Locked On NBA, the preview extravaganza, all part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Make sure that you go to your local team and subscribe to your favorite team's daily NBA podcast.